Thank you, Adam. Good morning, everyone. My name is Bea, and I'm an alcoholic. My last words were to, to behave. Well, I'm not sure that I can do that. Uh, but before I get into my favorite topic, which is myself, I um, want to thank um, Stan and Marion for inviting me. Uh, as uh, some of you know, I've been doing a great deal of traveling recently, and uh, I didn't want to pass this particular opportunity up of being with you in this God place, because that's what I think this place is. Uh, I hope that you're comfortable on those chairs, because my plane doesn't leave until 7 tonight. Um, just relax. Um, you know, I always say to um, people that my life was fine until I was two, you know, so you can take a look at me and you know I have a long ways to go, a long story to tell. Um, and I'm also real impressed with the way God kind of shows off at these sorts of things. Somebody asked me a little while ago if I was nervous, and I said no, because, you know, all I have to do is stand up here, you know, and whatever happens, happens, and that's your problem for inviting me, you know. <laughs> I'm just delighted to be here, and um, it's, it's just relaxing and wonderful. I'm also thrilled with the way God did some little peekaboos this weekend to me. Uh, the the, um, the captain on the airplane where I was when I was flying over here, well, I don't know how he would know this, but he knew I was on the plane, and he sent his big book out from the cockpit for me to sign. Or is the say in Texas to sign? Did I do that right? <laughs> I'm always looking for a sign. I love the way they say it. I do a lot of work in the southern states, and I mimic you all on my way. So I'm from Ireland, as you can tell. And Brian probably is the only one who knows what I'm talking about, because his parents came from the same part of Ireland that I come from. So that's another little serendipity miracle, you know, these little coincidences. And then I met Alice, and I feel like I've known Alice for my whole entire life, and we've, we dig it a lot, which is good for me. Then I met a, a, several people whom I've met over the years in my travels, and I especially was delighted to meet Audrey, who used to uh, coordinate the San Diego Women's Retreats that I give every year. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just so shocked and delighted to meet her, and I'm, I'm just pleased with the way God keeps telling me that God's there and I don't have to be worrying about anything. So when I was two, what happened for me, my little sister was born. And if you're like me and you're totally self-centered and selfish and all the rest of the S's that it says on page 62 of the big book, um, you don't like any kind of competition. And so she was born and, and immediately it felt like she moved into my spot. And uh, for those of you who are new and you wonder what this has to do with alcohol, uh, somewhere in those pages in the, in the 60s of the book, it talks about that alcohol today is not our problem, but our job now is that we have to get down to the causes and conditions. The things that set us up and connected us with this drug called alcohol that made us stop feeling, which is all I ever wanted to do, was to stop feeling. And interestingly, I find in my continued recovering, not being totally recovered, but as I cover, I find that um, I would do anything rather than feel sometimes. I don't know if any of you identify with that, but, you know, I would do other sorts of things rather than feel. But anyway, uh, these little feelings that I had at two seemed to haunt me for a long, long time. And it felt to me that my parents just spent a lot of time adoring at her crib. 
And then they went on doing what they do a lot of in Ireland, as Brian will probably testify. They went on having a lot more children in the family. We had five of us when it ended up. And I was the oldest at eight when my father was killed in an accident. And uh, what I remember about that event was that it was extremely sad in our family. And my mom took me aside on the day of my daddy's funeral, and she said to me, B, I want you to help me to raise these children. And I started to do what I have not done yet, which was to grow up. And um, I remember putting away all my playthings and my toys and starting about this thing called the business of living. And so I had all these little kids. The youngest was less than a year old, and my mother was a school teacher. And she taught me everything she knew. She taught me how to clean and cook and babysit. And she even taught me how to do little projects and stuff that she used to do with the kids in the classroom. In fact, what my mom taught me, I think it's written someplace on page 61 of the big book. And it says something like this. It says, is he not? And since I'm not a he, I always say, is she not a victim of the delusion that she can rest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if she only manages well. I looked up the word rest in the dictionary one time, W-R-E-S-T, and the definition was to push and pull in a violent fashion. Now, I don't know if anybody here ever rested besides myself, but uh, I think we alcoholics are good at that. We're good at pushing and pulling in a violent fashion. So I rested with this notion that if only I could manage well, that my life would be wonderful. And I spent lots and lots of my years trying to manage well. And so in trying to do that, what I decided to do when I got into my teenage years, I decided, you know, what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. And so what I decided to do was to become a Catholic nun. Now, it often amazes me why a number this large would want to be spending a weekend, especially a Sunday morning, with a Catholic nun. I think you're nuts. Because um, I just presume immediately that at least three-fourths of you have a resentment against somebody like me. And as I say that, I want to tell you that I didn't do it to you, okay? I didn't. I didn't do it to you. At the same time, I want to say to you here, since I have this opportunity, I want to make public amends to you if you've ever been hurt by anybody in my profession. If any priest or nun or member of the Catholic Church has ever discounted you or abused you in any way, I want to publicly say that I am sorry. I come from a church that is a human church, and um, it makes lots of mistakes, and it rarely says it's sorry. So I like to take the opportunity to do that and to alleviate some hurt and pain that some of you might still be carrying around. Um, I've been doing this money stuff now for um, almost, well, I, honest to God, it seems like forever. It's like 45 years and three months and 10 days or something like that. And if you're wondering why I'm counting, I usually say to groups, which my sponsor says I shouldn't, I should stop saying, but I'm not that obedient yet. Um, I always say, if you've been doing celibacy that long, you'd be counting it too. But uh, sometimes I 
people whine at me. I, I do these weekend retreats sometimes, and people say to me, you know, sister, we've been celibate for eight months, and I think, well, try 46 years, you know, that I... <laughs> I love the life I'm doing. I'm a sister of Sinclair, which is the Francis of Assisi, which many of us know in the program, was the co-founder of the group that I belong to. And so I started into this money stuff, and it was all fine. And they sent me over to England to finish my education, and I did that. And when I was all done, I just knew a wee bit about everything. You know what I mean? I just was got awfully smart. And um, I had an opinion about everything. I still have lots of opinions about lots of things, but not as many as I did then. And um, I can remember distinctly what happened in my case was I was teaching finally after I was all done with my training and all. And I was teaching, and um, I was teaching little kids, and I loved this. I loved the group of sisters that I was with, and I loved the kids, and it seemed to be fit me really well, except that there were all kinds of little inside feelings, and I didn't know what their name was. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, the big book caused a big restless, irritable, and discontent. I was that long time ago, this little restlessness that would come over me and irritable, and uh, one of the, the mantras or uh, things would go off in my mind was, if only they would shape up, I would feel better. And, and uh, you know, every once in a while when I'm not really working a good program, that little voice will come back to me, and I will want to blame them, whoever they might be. And if only they could do it differently, I'd feel better. And one day, I came home from school, and on our bulletin board, there was a, a notice and it was from our boss lady back in Ireland, our superior general. And it said, would any of you sisters in this particular convent like to volunteer and go to Southern California? Well, here I am. I'm the greatest volunteer of all creation. If you ever want me to do anything, here I am. And um, I volunteered, and I got picked, and they sent me. And as I was leaving on the 16th of August, 1964, I had to go back to Ireland to do all my paperwork and all. And as I was just leaving, my superior said to me, Sister, we're going to put you in charge. Now, there is nothing that a potential budding alcoholic likes to hear better than they're going to be put in charge. And we like it more and more and more as the time goes on, don't we? Uh, we sort of have a, a tendency to want to be in charge, to wa want to run the show. And so that meant I was going to be the boss lady of the school and of all these little nanny bunnies who were running around me with lots of those then. And... So I arrived in California in August, and uh, it was very hot, and we were dressed in all the long, uh, woolly, heavy, nunny clothes, you know, with our heads all covered with white serge, and all you could see was our two hands and, and our faces, that's all. And um, I can remember thinking, this is going to be fine now, because now, finally, I'm going to get the world to, to work and do it the way they're supposed to, which is my way. And uh, so I was getting it all ready and into shape. And then after a couple of days, I met what was known as the pastor. Now, he, he, he had this notion, and I don't know where he ever got it, was that he was in charge, too. And uh, immediately, our, you know, we began to lock horns. But I was too nice and polite in those days to uh, say out loud what I was thinking and feeling. And um, it was just awful, I can remember. It was very painful, and I planned his demise on many occasions. I wrote many letters in my head, and I cried myself to sleep many nights, and it was just awfully difficult. And a magical thing happened for me, which I know happened for you, or you probably wouldn't be sitting here today. 
a magical thing happened for me, and that was that I got my first drink. And I want to tell you about that because it was very significant to me. It was a very significant moment, and if it hadn't happened to me, I don't think I'd be here with you today. And what happened was that a lady who had her children in our school, she came to my office door one day and she said, Sister, why don't you have all the sisters come over this evening and swim at our swimming pool? And so we piled all the nanny bunnies into the big station wagon, all nuns at the station wagon of those days, and we all went over there and we swam at our swimming pool, and um, it was wonderful. But the most wonderful part of all was that when we were sitting there, after we had the swimming finished, she came to the side of the pool with this tray and this large pitcher, big, big jug like this, you know, and some glasses with salt on the top. Oh! And she poured this, you know, into the glasses. And I would love to tell you that I knew how to sip. I never knew how to sip. And I took a large draft out of this beverage. You, you sound like you know what was in the pitcher. In some places, they don't know what that's like. And like in Sydney, Australia, they're not that sure. And in Auckland, or New Zealand, where it's just been a few months ago, they, they haven't grown up with margaritas like some of us have. And my personal opinion is that if you haven't had a margarita, you might not, should not maybe be here yet, you know. I mean, God, it's wonderful. I will never forget the experience. It was just, it was the greatest spiritual awakening I think I've ever had in my whole life. Because what it did was it relaxed my neck and my shoulders and my arms and my whole body right down to my toes. And I just said to the lady as we were leaving, do you think we could have the recipe for this to take home? And she gave me the recipe, the way she whipped it up and all. And um, I just thought the nicest, kindest thing that I could do for these little nanny bunnies who worked so hard because they worked for me, you know. Anybody who worked for me worked very hard. I wasn't your easy does it kind of, you know, basic person. I get things moving and shaking uh, fast. And um, anybody who's ever worked with me, like Audrey, would testify to that. I get things moving fast. And I don't, um, I don't mess around. And uh, so I would say to them on a regular basis, you know, um, Let's change all the classrooms on Friday. Let's put the first graders into the fifth grade. Let's put the second graders into the third grade. I had this notion that if we had lots of confusion and activity and chaos, that everything would be better. Did you ever do that? And so basically these guys were always very tired. You know, they were exhausted with me. And no wonder they used to say to me, you look kind of pale and tired this evening. Why don't you have a little something to sort of calm you down. You know, they were just hoping to sort of put me to sleep early, you know, in case I'd have another thought that would get them going, and God bless them, you know. Poor girls, you know, it took me so long to make amends to them, to make living amends, to to kind of relax them all down again. It's just that we didn't have to live like that anymore. And uh, it's nice to be able to tell them that I don't know the answers, I don't know what we're going to do next, and it's just fine. <laughs> it's a nice, easy way to live. But anyway, um, I used to flip up this, this little recipe as regularly as I could find the ingredients. And so one day the pastor came over and he said to me, is there anything you need? He was basically a good man. Uh, and, and I said to him, yes, we would like to have a bottle of tequila, please. And um, he looked at me. I can remember well the way he looked at me. And he said, you like that stuff? And I said, well, yeah, we do. We kind of like that. And he said, well, okay. He, he disappeared and he came back in three minutes. And, and, and I, I believe he got us where the manufacturer it, which was in the rectory where he lived. Now, that's just a personal opinion that I had, but I'm not sure. 
But I do know that he invited us then over to where they lived, which was across the parking lot, and um, they they had little get-togethers every once in a while, and they'd invite some friends in and some priests in and all. And I discovered there were all kinds of drinks there. You know, there was uh, bourbon and vodka and rum, and then there was lots of different kinds of wine. And then they had this very sophisticated thing called after-dinner drinks. And there was nothing more cultured, I thought, than just washing it all down with this gorgeous thing called Brandy Alexander's. Ooh, it just kind of got you in that place where you've always wanted to be, and just nice and mellow and wonderful, and God was in the world, and everybody was fine, and we were all happy, and except that it never lasted very long. I think I had that experience. I I think I must have had that experience maybe twice or three times. And then I was always wanting to get it, if you know what I mean. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I know that. And it was just amazing. And then I noticed something. I noticed that these nunnies didn't like to drink the way that I did. They did the most unforgivable thing there is, which is they sipped and they used to not finish it. Do you, you know, ever see people doing that? I watch people do that in airplanes all the time. You know, they just don't finish. And I just don't know how people can do that. It's such a waste, you know, of, of good material here. And uh, these gals would say things like, let's have the little glasses, you know, when we'd say. I'd say, are you tired? And they'd say, you're exhausted. And I'd say, well, let's, we've all worked on it. Let's celebrate this evening. I never did say, let's all get drunk this evening. I never said those words. Uh, celebrate kind of had a, a sort of a liturgical note about it, you know, it's sort of holy or something, you know, and, and it, it meant, you know, to them that we would just sit back and relax a little bit, maybe we'd watch a little TV or something, and we wouldn't have everything at the same time, and we wouldn't be so regimented or whatever, but I meant only one thing, and I know you know who that is, I meant let's drink this evening, that's what I meant. But they didn't mean that. But I, I didn't know. You know. I just thought I was providing a nice environment and nice quietness and good feelings. And maybe we'd put on some music and we'd, we'd listen to some Irish music and we'd talk about the good old times and we'd get lonely and I would cry or else I would get angry or whatever. And it just always ended up. And they would say then to me the next day, often they would say, oh my, but you were something last night. And I wasn't sure ever what that was. You know, I didn't know if I danced on the table or if I cried or if I insulted somebody. I just wasn't sure exactly what I had done. And uh, my drinking progressed. And as my drinking progressed, so did my internal, my interior death. One of my favorite places to drink was Mexico. And uh, we had this friend of ours who lived in the parish, and he owned a little trailer down in Nestero Beach. And one day he came to the office and he said to me, Sister, you know, we don't, we hardly ever use this any longer. And you, know, you all work so hard. Why don't you take the keys and any time you get the chance, just drive on down there. It's like two hours from where we lived. So he handed me the keys. I can still remember this. This was a wonderful experience. And he said, this is the key of the front door. There are three keys. This is the key of the cabana. And he held up a little shiny key. And he said, Sister, this is the key of the liquor cabinet. Help yourself. And I said, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. (laughs) 
And I said to the nanny bunnies, you know, pretty soon more than 50% of Southern California will be Hispanic, and we will have to go down there to Mexico and learn how to speak Spanish, because there was a law in California at the time that you had to teach Spanish from sixth grade level on up. And so I said to them, let's go down to Mexico as often as we can so that we can learn how to speak Spanish with the Americans and the Canadians who are all in that same little place, by the way. But, you know, the, the way we tell ourselves the, the lies, you know, we don't know that. We don't have any clue. And so we'd pile into this big station wagon every so often, as quickly, as often as we could, long weekends, short weekends. I was impressed with America because they had lots and lots of holidays that we didn't have. We had St. Patrick's Day, which I extended like for a long time. St. Patrick's Day always happened in Lent. And, uh, you know, so Lent for me meant that I could stop my fast, which was from drinking. And uh, St. Patrick's Day would last like 12 days before and 24 days after. Just wonderful. Oh, gosh. Not to have to do the sort of things that I had to do again is in itself a tremendous relief. And if anybody had ever told me that the magnificent things would happen that have happened to me since I came to this program, I would never have believed them. I didn't believe them for a long, long time. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I continued to die. Uh, and it's interesting to me when I say that, because if I were to start over here and I were to go all around this room and end with you here, Marion, and, and say to each of you, do you remember where you were when you died? Do you remember were you driving? Were you in a hospital? Were you by yourself? Where were you? And it doesn't matter, you know, which program you're in or anything, but all of us had some sort of a death, or we probably wouldn't be here today. Uh, Bill Wilson talks about it on page 8 of the big book. He said that no words can tell of the loneliness and despair. And if there's anything that evens us all out and makes us feel that we all belong, we all fit with one another here, I think the word loneliness and despair, you know, we, we all know what that felt like. And he said he was in that bitter morass of self-pity where alcohol had become his master. And he didn't know where to go or who to ask or where to put his foot because every time he, he, he moved, he felt he was in quicksand. He was being sucked down. And he had now met his match. And he was overwhelmed. And alcohol was the, was, was the power behind that that had taken him. And I had come to that moment in my life in my convent surrounded by wonderful people who were kind and good and prayerful and peaceful people. And I was dying. And I did not know who I could tell this to. I knew that alcoholics were people who um, didn't know how to do anything and who didn't have any willpower. This was my concept of alcoholics and alcoholism. And, I, and because I had all this information about God, you know, I have a degree on God, which never kept me sober, incidentally, for those of you who, who are interested in that. You know, God and I could never keep me sober. I had to meet people like you, and I had to connect with people like you, and I had to listen to suggestions from people like you in order that I could keep sober. Because I prayed very, very hard before I got sober so that God and I could just keep me sober. And it never worked. I was trying to do it, you know, I was trying to surrender kind of in a way that I had devised myself. And I also have this uh, terrible Irish problem that some of us have, and it's called arrogance. I, you probably don't have it out here in Hawaii, but um, 
that means that, you know, I, I, I will do everything I possibly can myself, and I certainly will not be asking you to help me. And to come into a program that tells you that you have to surrender. If you come from the part of Ireland that I come from, the word surrender is foreign to our vocabulary. You know, they tell you, be, you know, all you have to do, honey, all you have to do is surrender. What? Surrender? I mean, the graffiti that we have in our walls in the north of Ireland is no surrender. That means that we will never give up unless we die or we fight to the death. You know what I mean? It's just a, it's, it's a cultural thing almost. And when you come into a program like this, to tell you surrender is what's going to work for you, you just think they're nuts. You know, you really do. And interestingly enough, I find that people from all different countries have that experience very often when they come to the program. And so I was dying in my convent, and I was standing in the community room, and I just didn't know what I was going to do next. And I happened on, if there's such a thing, this little pamphlet. Uh, I just picked it up, and, and on the very last page of the pamphlet that's published for sisters. And on the very last page, there was an ad. And the ad said, Sister, are you concerned about your drinking? If so, call this number collect. So I made a phone call to Massachusetts at 9 o'clock in the evening, which was midnight their time. And uh, I talked to a woman on the phone. And I told her that I was very concerned about other people's drinking. I told her lots of lies. It was very soon she had done that. You know, you, not you, you know. And you really want to help them very badly, but you don't know how you're going to do this. And I told her that I was changing jobs. That part was true. I was moving from being a school principal into a job in the diocese. And I told her that I knew that I was going to be working with all these priests and lots of them drunk, and I didn't know how I was ever going to help them. And she listened and listened, and she was wonderful, very kind and very gentle. And then she said that there were books I could read and there were recovery programs that I could tell them about, and she was really led me on nicely. And then at the very end of the conversation, when I was going to thank her for her information, which she was going to send me some, she said to me, Sister, would you like to tell me a little bit about your own drinking? Oh, that was not in my mind, really, when I called her. Oh, I just would never know how they're so slight in Massachusetts. You know, they just... Kind of, she just honed in, and she said, because it seems to me that you probably would not be making a long-distance telephone call at midnight, collect, uh, just to talk about other people's drinking. And at that moment, I received a direct grace from God to break down and cry into the telephone, and I sobbed, and I could hardly talk, and I said to her, you know, I don't know what to do, and who to ask, and what can I do, and I, I, I just doing what I'm going to do. And she said, well, I've been, and I, I've been in, re, in recovery for 15 years, she said, and I'm an alcoholic. And she said, um, I can hear pain in your voice. And the great gift that you and I now have is that we can hear the pain in one another's voices. And because we can hear that, and we can see the pain in one another's eyes, too. Even as we continue to recover, we can see that. And because of that, somehow we can be God's instruments in the continued healing that we require. And so she heard the pain in my voice. And she told me about AA meetings and AA and send me books and all that stuff. And she said, you know, it would be really a good thing if you could go through a couple of AA meetings. And if you could just listen to the similarities instead of the differences. What a wise thing to say. Well, I went to, I, I couldn't get her conversation out of my mind, but I know when she was finished that I went into the kitchen and I filled up a nice tall glass of scotch with hardly anything in it. 
And I kind of knew, as I was drinking that glass, that that would be the last drink I would ever have. And I sort of sat in a very Irish fashion, in a very dramatic fashion, and I blessed it and I cursed it all at the same time. Now, if you're not Irish, you don't know what I'm talking about, but that's okay. You know, we can do that. And I knew that it was no longer working for me and that it had turned to be my enemy. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous the next day in a town which was quite a distance from where I live because I want you to know that in those days I used to be very important, in my own eyes especially. And so I remember telling the people, I was still in the school, still involved in the school, telling my secretary and all the people I was going to be out for a meeting and, you know, didn't pay much attention to that because I was already running Los Angeles County and Orange County and San Bernardino County and most of Southern California, actually. And if you had needed me, I could have taken care of you, too. And um, so I took off and I took to, uh, I went to this meeting. And what I did was I took off all my nunny clothes and put on regular clothes and I put on a lot of eye makeup. I can remember doing that. Very, very sophisticated looking, going down to this meeting in a place called Serenity Hall in Whittier. Now, I don't think any of you have ever been there. And Serenity Hall was about the size of this stage, I think, and it was filled with smoke and little old men who were shuffling all over Serenity Hall. And two women, one left and one stayed. And the one who stayed was, as we say in Ireland, she was not the full shilling. You know, she was just not all there. She was um, one taco short of a combination plate, you know, gone, totally gone. I remember thinking, oh, my Lord, what am I going to do? And I'm sitting there, shriveled up, petrified. And anyway, there was this fellow, and he came up to the podium to share his experience, strength, and hope. And he told us that he had a few years uh, sober. And now he had his family back and his wife back and all. And I was kind of impressed with that. But what impressed me even more was that he was using a vocabulary that I used to punish the eighth graders for writing on the bathroom walls. You know what I mean? He was using a word that starts with sh, which you probably don't ever heard of here, sh. And then he moved on to, he graduated into a word that starts with f. Some of you might have heard that word. Well, um, he, he was using the f word in sentences. And he was using it in, in various parts of speech, like a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb, a preposition, and a conjunction. And um, he was amazing. He was even using the fuck word with ing on the end and ed on the end. And on one occasion, he used it with the word mother before it. And I can remember thinking, you know, I can remember thinking to myself, and this is going to be my spiritual leader for the rest of my life. Ew, you know, we didn't go around the conference and stuff all the time. They have learned, but, you know, those days we didn't do that. And, um, God, it was, I can remember thinking. Uh, we stood at the end and we said the Lord's Prayer, and then they said, keep coming back. And, oh, and there were, they had these bright-looking eyes. You know, there's something about their eyes, the people. And I remember getting into my car to go home, and I was crying really hard, and this cheap eye makeup that I had put on my eyes was rolling down my face, and I looked in the rearview mirror at the stop sign like some of us do, and I remember saying the shuck word, and the fuck word, all the way home to the convent. Oh, oh. And I thought, well, you know, the anger that I had and the 
the, the unwillingness that I had. Now, I know that some of you have walked into these rooms and you have loved this deal from the minute you walked in. But I've met some people. In fact, I sponsor a couple of people who seem to, you know, to go with the flow and if you suggest something, they'll do it. They'll, they don't fight you, you know. I just found this deal called surrender terrible. I mean, it was just awful for me. Uh, I heard a definition one time, surrender is the willingness to get well somebody else's way. <laughs> what? You something somebody else's way besides my way? Well, that's just a whole different thing for me. I don't do that well. And what we're basically suggesting at these meetings is basically five things. You know, they're saying, don't drink. <laughs> And don't use any mind-altering drugs. Now, I wasn't really big into drugs, but the doctor had prescribed for me some Elevil and Therazine. And uh, then I had been graduated into something called Librium and Valium. You've heard of those. And uh, I used to find that when I swilled those down with a little bit of vodka or stuff, whatever I could get my hands on, it made me feel like the music on Twilight Zone. You know, you know, way off. The lights are on, but there's nobody home, kind of. You know, it's just... Incredible. And so um, somehow I didn't care for the, what the drugs did to me. So I didn't pursue the use of prescription drugs to any great extent. But, oh, I loved alcohol. You know, I just really loved the alcohol. And I got sober on the 2nd of December, 1978. So I didn't know how you could do Christmas without drinking in a convent. Now, get this. You know, a convent at Christmas is the only legal time you can drink is Christmas, where nobody's going to be asking you questions and wondering what you want to get drink for. So if Christmas became, oh, everybody drank at Christmas time a wee bit, you know? They would drink a wee bit and I would drink a lot. And so Christmas was something to look forward to. Now, if you get sober on the 2nd of December, how are you going to do Christmas? Oh, I was just in a state, and they were telling me, B, you don't drink and you don't use any kind of drugs. And then they were saying... You know, you go to meetings, go to lots of meetings, and I didn't think there was any of these meetings that was going to enhance what I already knew, because a lot of these meetings that were trying to tell me, trying to tell me about God. Of course, you know, I had given my life over to God, I thought, hundreds of years ago, you know, they were telling me about a third step, you turn your will and your life over to God. You know, I'm really embarrassed about how that was then because I hadn't a clue about God. I knew knowledge about God. I never experienced God till I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Never experienced God. Never felt the love of God. Never had made a God of my own understanding until I had met people like you. And the reason I believe, the real reason that I have this comfortable, wonderful God today is because you made me feel comfortable. People like you made me feel comfortable. You made me feel loved. You enveloped me in the warmth of your continued recovery. And that was what I needed. I needed to see that in action. They were saying, uh, read the book. Now, I was an English major from the University of London. And I read the book. And uh, I didn't care for the way they wrote the book because the book has lots of mistakes. You know what I mean? It does. It has lots of grammatical errors, the way the, the sentences are constructed. So I took the book down to the beach and I corrected it for any of your interested. I put in the commas and the semicolons and the, the brackets and I fixed the clauses so that it could read with a flow as an English major would really like it to be read. And so I brought it down to Serenity Hall, God help me. And I told them this, and they said, keep coming back, B, you know, just, God help us. I mean, I think they had bets on me that I'd never get it, you know. And then they were saying I had to get a sponsor. 
um, or it would be a good thing to get a sponsor. If you're Irish like I am, you're reserved and you're reticent, you won't want to be telling anything personal to anybody. And you're, you, you just don't, you, you, it's very hard for us. It really is very hard for us. Because we don't do this well. We don't put our laundry out there at all. Oh, God forbid, you know. You don't tell anything from the family outside of the family. And we have all kinds of rules in Ireland. And it's just awful. And so they said the sponsor would take me to meetings and eventually get to teach you how to work the steps and you'd be taking a fourth step. I said I would never take a fourth step. I promised everybody. I said it out loud at the meeting. I would never be taking a fourth step. I spent half my life going to confession for God's sake. What have they wanted to do a fourth step for? I had a fifth step. And all of the setters keep coming back. So, you know. So what I did with the sponsor deal was I interviewed some women. Now, they didn't know they were being interviewed. But I did some interviewing. And I hired them on for a temporary time, you know, until they were telling me things I didn't like, and then I let them go, and I'd move on to somebody else, and I, oh, I was just in such pain. And then I heard people at meetings saying that I would have to get involved in the steps. And again, because of this arrogance and this information that I had, this God information, which nearly prevented me from getting any kind of surrender. You know, the more you have, the worse it is for you, especially if you rationalize and analyze and don't utilize. It's just really hard. And I was struggling, struggling, struggling. Now, the only thing I didn't do was I did not drink. And the reason I didn't drink was because I knew they would know. There were, oh, there were, as they say in Australia, the women especially in the area where I come from, they, they were very nosy and curious. And they look at you, you know, and look at you in your eyes. And I'll tell you, they say sticky beaks, you know. They stick their beaks into your business. You know, they ask you things. Sticky beaks, you know, me. And say, P, you know, when was your last drink? And where do you live? And I'd say, oh, this is an anonymous program, and I won't be sharing that with you. Well, you know, I mean, please, preserve us from people like me, you know. And I meet them all the time, and I, I have such love and compassion for anybody, for anybody who resists this deal. I love you tremendously, because I know what that feels like. I really do. I know what that resistance and that struggle feels like. Um, I believe I was born to struggle kind of thing until I found some methods and some ways of, of trying to surrender. And this is what happened for me. I was miserable in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't recommend it, and it wasn't really necessary, except that maybe that God allowed it to happen to me so that I could pass it on. I was miserable in Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time, and I was struggling into Serenity Hall this day, and I was crying. I was always crying with frustration and rage. I saw everybody else with the bright eyes, and they'd say things like, oh, I had a flat tire on the way to the meeting, and it was okay. God. How could anybody have a flat tire and be okay? You know, just the, the vicissitudes of life were just incredible for me, and nothing was okay. And I noticed that there was a certain acceptance and surrender in these people. And, and I knew that they found out a secret that I still couldn't get. And one day, I went into Serenity Hall, and I was crying again. In fact, they used to call me the crying nun. Now, I didn't know that. I had known I would never have gone back. And this older man from AA who has since passed on, very gentleman, he said to me, B, he said, you know, this program is supposed to help us to be happy, joyous, and free. And he said, you seem to be struggling a lot, and you always seem to be like you're in pain. And you know, honey, you don't really have to. And he was really gentle and kind. And, he, and I told him how it wasn't working. I told him how I couldn't do it. And I told him how the book was just terrible for me to read and how 
sponsorship. I couldn't get a sponsor that was intelligent enough to understand what I was talking about. Oh, it was awful, and I couldn't do these steps because I'd done them years ago, and they didn't. Nobody understood anything. And and he looked at me and he nodded and said, "Oh yeah, be it's hard, but you know what?" He said, "I'm going to tell you something. That if you do this one thing, he said, it might everything might change for you." Well, I was all ears because I was desperate. And he said, "Go home," he said. And kneel down and ask God to give you the willingness to change your attitude. Now, I had never heard anybody with all, with all the praying I had ever done. You know, I'd made, I had made a 30 day retreat up in Northern California, like fasting and praying that God would be able to give me the, the magical thing that you and I can't do, which is the grace to, to enjoy our drinking and control us at the same time. You know, we try to do that. You know, control our joy, enjoy our drinking. The, the chapter three says we can't do that, that we drive ourselves to the gates of insanity or death just trying to do that. And he said to this man, said, why don't you to pray for the willingness just to um, to let go and to change some things. And for me to get on my knees and say that sort of stuff to God, because I was very arrogant and I had very important prayers to pray to God, and it wasn't like a little prayer like that. But I did it because I was miserable. And I would love to tell you that God appeared to me at that moment. God appeared later, but not then. And... Uh, God didn't appear. There were, there were no angels in the sky. There was no rainbow. There was nothing. There was no burning bush. Except this one thing, that I was driving on the 57 freeway some days after that. And I happened to notice the sunset in the mirror of the car. And it occurred to me that I'd never, ever noticed the sunset in Southern California before. Because my mind was totally taken up with other things, you know, especially drinking. Uh, it reminds me of Willie Nelson's song, You're Always on My Mind, you know, that song he sings. And I think alcohol was always on my mind, and I was just so intent on, on running the world. And so I knelt and I said this prayer, and it occurred to me that I hadn't thought of drinking for several days. And I knew at that moment, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the merciless obsession had been lifted from me. I knew that the miracle had happened. And I got very excited about this deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. Very excited. And that excitement has stayed with me until today. And by the grace of God, it won't leave me. This is what I found out. I found out that the recipe for it all is on page 62. It gives me the problem, which is all down the page until the last paragraph. It tells me the self, self-centeredness and selfishness, which in my case meant taking care of the whole world, running the universe, being totally and completely responsible for everything, everywhere, at all times, you know, that sort of brand of selfishness, and the various forms of fear that we have, told me all that. And then it said to me, B, you know B, honey, this is the how and the why, that you have to quit playing God because it doesn't work. <laughs> now, I didn't think I was God, but I was positive that I was Mrs. God. You know, I like this ring on my finger. The ring on my finger inside says, my God and my all, so why wouldn't I be Mrs. God? I'd give my whole life to God. So what, wouldn't you think I, they could call me Mrs. God at least, that I could tell God what to do, do once in a while and he would do it? And um, it says it doesn't work if you do that. And hereafter, be in this drama of life, God's going to be your director and he's going to be the principal and you're his agent and he's the father or mother or whatever and you're his child. And then it says, most good ideas are simple, B, and this, this concept, is the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which you would pass to freedom. 
you know, ladies and gentlemen, all I've ever wanted was what I have now. And what I have now is inner freedom, inside freedom, inside of every fiber of my being. I have inside freedom. And what a gift this is for me, for somebody like me who always struggles, who always hoped that I would impress, God help me, you know, who always wanted it to be always different from what it was. Always wanted it. You know, I read somewhere recently where the author was saying, we're standing on a hill of diamonds but often we're trying to find the gold beyond the next ridge. And I forget that I'm standing on this hill of diamonds all the time. And if I take the moment to pause, to pause, and to listen for and watch out for that diamond that God has prepared for me for that moment, I'm in really good shape. Well, what I noticed was then, as I got very excited and turned on in this whole program, was I noticed that, it mentions the word self-selfishness and self-centeredness 13 times on page 62, which is a sign that, you know, it must be my problem. And then uh, it goes on to, to give, as a result of doing step three, which is letting God take over and quitting playing God anymore, it, it goes on to give like 13 promises in step three. And so I got all excited about the promises that are caught into the steps. And Audrey and some of my friends have known that I've done some retreats on the promises and Alana was one of the retreats I did on the promises and um, I found that there were 86 promises there caught into the steps. There are 13 in step 3 and there are 6 in step 4 and there's 10 in step 5 and there's a whole bunch of promises caught in there. And my belief today is that if I'm not experiencing one or a combination of these promises on a regular basis that I'm not connected with the whole deal somehow that if I'm not continuing to be happy and comfortable in my own skin with unresolved problems, that somehow I'm not getting it. And so that was the miracle for me, that I was able to make the connection because I was able to follow one simple direction, which was to pray for willingness to change. Now, I want you to know, and I'm sure many, many of you know, I'm sure you all know this, that any time I ever get stuck in my continued recovery, Anytime I get stuck in sobriety, you know, when I want what I want, when I want it my own way all the time, and I, I just don't want to move, I get either complacent or stuck, as I call it. When I get there and I pray for the willingness, God always says this to me, I think. God says, B, I thought you'd never ask. I just thought you'd never ask, honey. I have this big load of willingness to give to you just for today, and that's all you're going to need, just for Sunday. He never does next year. I don't know why, because my calendar goes into 1998, 1999. I don't know why God can't like, stretch that willingness out a little bit. But God just says, you have enough, D, just enough, just for today. This is all you need. I have all I need right now. Great affirmation that I use a lot. I have everything I need right now. Everything I need. And I, I got really excited. I got especially excited about one of the promises in step four where it taught me on page 68 the fear prayer. Oh, that was such a relief. It says we ask God to remove our fear, direct our attention to what he would have us be. And it, that's all very fine and well for me to read that on a page and say, well, you know, that, that'll work for you. But if I didn't turn it into a prayer for me, it wouldn't work for me. So I turned it into a prayer. And the prayer, the fear prayer that I turned into, it turned it into was God remove my fear and direct my attention to what you'd have me be. And the promise then goes, at once, don't you love that? At once, we love things hurried up, most of us do. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. 
As soon as we say the fear prayer, we start feeling better. Um, I was sharing with some of you that one of the projects that I've been involved in in the last couple of years was developing a 11-step house in California. It's called St. Clair's Garden. And it's a place for people to come and pray and meditate and just do step 11. And when I was in the middle of that project, uh, I had lots of fear because I, I got the idea of doing it when we were in the middle of a recession and I didn't know how in God's name I was ever going to do it. And um, Audrey knows the story really well. But um, it's blooming and wonderful now. And all through that whole process, I kept saying, God, remove my fear, direct my attention to what you'd have me be. God, remove my fear and direct my attention to what you'd have me be. God, what kind of a woman do you want me to be? That's really all we have to ever ask. What does God want us to be? And I think if we listen, we can hear. I think we can hear. I was especially impressed with the promises of Step 5 too, the Ten Promises. We can look the world in the eye. People like us who are so ashamed and so afraid and so embarrassed and so caught up with the sorts of things that we pulled and did and the, the guilt and the shame. Oh, And to know now that we can look the world in the eye and that we can feel that we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Wonderful, wonderful promise. And that the promises that we usually refer to on pages 83 and 84, the new freedom and the new happiness, and we, how we, our intuition comes alive. We'll intuitively know how to handle things that used to battle us. You know, that intuition we've always had, but the program makes it alive, and we become, we start living it then. And all that information is there for us if we become in tune. Uh, I read the defi a definition that a poet in Australia wrote for the word pause. I can never become in tune if I don't pause. And, and he, he called the word pause, he said, a gap in the human go. Isn't that wonderful? A gap in the human go where the divine squeezes through. You know, when I stop my human goal, and, and let the, the divine God squeeze through, I get to know what it is God wants me to do. But if I don't pause, I, don't, I can't get that. I remember one friend I had in the program, Deke, he used to say to me, be every time you see pause, always write stop on the top of it, because you come from Ireland, and they don't use the word pause there, so you've got to say stop, you know, just stop everything. So when I pause, I find that it works for me. And, and learn learn how to be still. And so I was so, I, I became so aware as I went all over the world, which I'm doing now, uh, I became so aware that in, in our continued sobriety, what happens to us sometimes, we get caught in this wonderful thing called enthusiasm, and then we forget how to pause, and we forget this conscious contact. I was impressed by the promises of step 10. You know, the first one especially, where it says, guess what, B, you're going to stop fighting. <laughs> Imagine me stopping fighting from the north of Ireland. Stop fighting everything and everybody, even alcohol. And then it promises me that I'll be placed in a position of neutrality. Page 80, 85. You'll be placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? And we'll be able to develop this vital sixth sense. We'll be able to develop it. Uh, I used to teach people how to pray and meditate before I got sober. I still do some of that. But I'm embarrassed when I say that because I found really 
how to do that when I found page 86 in the big book because it tells me what to do from the minute I wake up. It says from the minute you wake up, you ask God to, you know, you think about the 24 hours ahead and you consider your plans for the day. You know, you don't worry about your plots. She doesn't say anything about those. You consider your plans for the day. And then you ask God to direct your thinking. Uh, wonderful. It's just a wonderful meditation to imagine God trying to get my thinking in order. Now, that's a full-time job for God. It really is. Get my thinking in order. And this conscious contact, I, I love the wisdom of this program. I love the wisdom of the words conscious contact. Because I believe that conscious contact means that I need to be conscious. You know, I need to be awake and alive and conscious of what's going on, what I'm feeling, what's going on for me. Just not contact. I had contact with God all my whole life. I said these prayers to a God way out there somewhere, but not a conscious contact. Before I finish, I want to tell you how I found God in this program. I found God when I came to steps six and seven. And I came, became entirely willing for God to remove my defects of character. And I didn't, I was such a perfectionist that I didn't know how entirely, entirely was. And I grappled with that. And I didn't think I had that many defects of character. And those I had, I didn't want to be telling anybody. And oh, I had such problems with all that. And then I finally got in step seven. Oh, that wonderful, wonderful, precious, precious step. It's the, 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 Step, I call it the prayer on page 76, is the self-esteem prayer. That's what it is. Because it says, my creator, I am now willing that you, God, should have all of me, good and bad. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Imagine a God who would have me, whether I'm good or bad. Now, see, I didn't know any of that until I got to AA. Because I came from a sort of a background where you had to be kind of worthy. Can you hear that word, worthy? You had to be good for God. I spent most of my life trying to be good for God. I was never worthy. I was never deserving. And when I read the words of step seven on page 76, it said, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. And then I knew. I knew what I had been teaching everybody forever. Now, what I had been teaching everybody forever was, you know, I've been teaching them little parts from scripture that says, you know, your God loves you. Oh, your God really loves you. Your God would carve your name on the palm of his hand or your God would call you by your name. Your God would would love you so much that he would note your agitation. This is from one of the Psalms. I've noted your agitation and now I will collect your tears and I will put them into a little bottle. Can you imagine a God who would think that we were so precious? And I knew that God would do that for you. I knew God would do that for you, but I was always this little orphan child with freckles and red hair, and I knew that God forgot about me. And when I got as far as step seven, I understood in my heart and in my soul that God meant me too. And it was okay for me to come to God whether it was good or bad, whether I was true or false, whether I was perfect or imperfect, whether I knew, whether I didn't know, and what somebody described to me was, you know, all you ever have to do from now on, B, is you have to become full-time B. That's all. You never have to impress anybody anymore. You just have to be yourself. And God will show you then what it is that you have to do. And that relief for me was something incredible. It was something that I never, ever expected, that I would get to understand this God who would think that somebody like me was precious.
because like most of us, I had this huge, low, tiny self-image. Oh, it was terrible. And I know today that I'm God's precious child. And I know that God loves me just the way I am and that I don't have to ever impress anymore. And what a nice feeling of relief and inner freedom that, that is for me. If there's any of you in this room this morning that might be stuck on this God stuff, you know, this God as you understand him or whatever it is you might be stuck with, you might want to, um, you just might want to think about step seven. It's a wonderful step for getting us to just our size, the size that we are, you know, and just to accept ourselves. This is me. This is it. I'm imperfect. I don't do some, I do some things well and some things I don't do real well. And um, some things I can tolerate and some things I can't. And I'm just, you know, I'm just trudging along like everybody else. And I'm not that special. And yet, in God's eyes, I'm real special. And it's a wonderful feeling of self-esteem. Well, you know, I never will know. There's 20, 25 promises in the big book uh, for step 12. They begin there in page 80, 89. And there's, I think there's about eight for, for step uh, 11. But I would never know for sure how step 12 works because it works in the weirdest ways, the weirdest times. Now, I know that it worked through Stan and Marion here through getting this conference ready and all the people who worked with you, all your committees and everybody who worked. And that, that really is, is doing 12-step work. It works with meetings where we clean up and we set up and we help and we read and we share. It helps in a variety of ways. And sometimes it works when we least expect it kind of like candy camera, you know, God uses us when we least expect that. And God goes, peek-a-boo, you know, and we never know for sure when God's going to use us. We really don't. And it's sort of mysterious. Uh, I was sponsoring a very important lady. She still is a very important lady in the program. And I remember telling her some time ago, she's some years now, and um, I remember saying to her, you, you can't drink, you know, you, you never can drink. And she kept telling me every single day for six months, well, I will, I will always drink a glass of wine every evening. She told me that. But she'd go to meetings and she'd read the book and she'd do her stuff and she, she was, she was really very, very sincere about the program, but she was still drinking. And I kept telling her, it doesn't work. You're supposed to, I took her to breakfast, I wrote her little notes, I called her on the phone, I talked to her, talked to her, talked to her. And one morning I invited her to come to my morning meeting that I go to every day. And this fool of a man stood up. You know how we have well, we only have fools in California, some of us are California. We know foolish people who repeat themselves. And we always say the same thing, you know, at the meetings, and you get very bored with them. And I'm always bored when the people repeat a lot. And this fellow stood up, and he was repeating himself as usual. I'm thinking, oh, God, I wish somebody would say something wise that this one could hear. And he's repeating himself, repeating himself. At the very end, he says, and this program works best if you don't drink and if you don't use any mind-altering drugs between meetings. And we get in the, in the car to go home, and she ha held my two hands, and she said, B, we're not supposed to drink between meetings. Oh. And, and so what I know today is that it's mysterious how God will work. And so when I'm busy taking somebody's inventory, you know, and thinking how they ought to have done it and how they should have done it, God's busy working, you see. And that's why, I believe that's why our code is called love and tolerance of others is our code. That we can't afford to be judgmental at all because we don't know for sure where God's working, how God's working, when God's working, or if God's working. So none of that's my business. Another thing that I know is not my business anymore, I know it's never my business to worry. Never. That's God's business. My business is to work. And God never does any of the work. Never. 
you know, I do all the work. And uh, my business is not to worry then. When I do what I'm supposed to do and do my work, then God's supposed to worry. Now, I used to think that I was responsible for everything, the worry and the results and everything. See, so none of that makes any difference most of the time to me now, except when I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And this is the glorious thing that people like you teach me and bring me back to what I'm supposed to be doing. So I say that the twelfth step is real mysterious to me. It always reminds me of a few lines that I think I can memorize from um, Shakespeare's play called King Lear. When he's, uh, King Lear is just about to go into prison with his daughter. And uh, he says to her, well, we shall laugh and we shall play and we shall sing and we shall look at gilded butterflies and take upon ourselves the mystery of things as though we were God's spies. In Alcoholics Anonymous and in Al-Anon, we get to take upon ourselves the mystery of things. We never would have believed that it would have turned out the way it did. Like page 100 says, when we look back at the things we placed in God's hands, that turned out better than anything that we could ever have done. And because I know that with such tremendous conviction, I am extremely grateful to God, and I'm very, very grateful to you, I'm very grateful to you again, Marion and Stan, for giving me this opportunity to share with you and become re renewed in the program, to become reawakened and revitalized by the energy and the enthusiasm that I find in this holy place. May God bless you and thank you. I love you all.